We are about to unfold the story of Frankenstein, a man of science who sought to create a man after his own image. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. Welcome to the now-playing Universal Films Frankenstein movie retrospective series. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Hosted by Jacob. I'd hate to find him under my bed at night. Arnie. You think I'm mad? Perhaps I am. And Stuart. England's greatest sinner. This episode will contain detailed plot spoilers and strong language. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, well, we've warned you. We hope you enjoy the show. To a new world of gods and monsters. <laughs> Today we're discussing Bride of Frankenstein, starring Boris Karloff, Colin Clive, Valerie Hobson, directed by James Whale. This is the now-playing co-host who was a teenage Frankenstein, Arnie. And Stuart. And this is the co-host who likes a girl whose bones are firm, Jacob. They wanted it two days later, but it took (laughs) four years to get a Frankenstein sequel. And the reason is, they wanted James Whale to make it. And James Whale, well, he kept working for Universal. He did direct their fourth monster movie, Invisible Man. And Boris Karloff did star in the third Universal monster movie, The Mummy, but they were done. They didn't see that there was a lot to mine out of going back to Frankenstein. Oh, how naive Hollywood was then. Did they not read the book? Because, first of all, they didn't do anything from the book in that first movie, so there's a whole book they could do. But second of all, when I was reading the book, I was like, hey, there's a Bride of Frankenstein in the original book Frankenstein? There's this concept of making him a mate? And all of that, all in the original book, there's obviously fertile ground that can be explored here. Yeah. And of course, Universal was going to make it. But again, Whale had a good track record. His non-horror films made good box office. And yeah, obviously Frankenstein, a huge hit. Invisible Man, a big hit. They wanted him. Other directors approached and they were willing to wine and dine him. But yes, maybe part of the problem is he didn't like what he was reading. He didn't read the novel, Arnie. He read all of the pitches and treatments. And one concept was that Henry would invent a laser that accidentally raised the dead and brought Frankenstein back with superpowers, like it could fly. So Friday the 13th, whatever one, where he gets the lightning bolt? That would be part six. I was thinking more like Super Freddy. <laughs> There's that too, yes. <laughs> There was one where, this one just felt like a ripoff of, you talk about Todd Browning, Freaks, if you ever saw that one, that Henry and Elizabeth would become puppeteers in a circus, and like they would perform like the Frankenstein story with marionettes, and then Frankenstein would join the sideshow, and they'd have to like have a come together or something. Just, I don't get it. It sounds weird. <laughs> yeah, it sounds weird and not like working. So they had lots of treatments. For years and years. So needless to say, just giving him a bride, that was not the next idea. Well, yeah, there were treatments like that, but it was they all were focused more on Henry. Why do you want to focus on the man? Well, you said you didn't understand him. And in this one, he was going around collecting dead women. And so, yeah, they had one where 
he was building a bride and he would actually kill Elizabeth, his actual wife, to complete that bride. And Okay, that sounds good. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Maybe something there. But the other thing happening around this time, production code. All of a sudden, you can't get away with some of the stuff that was in that first Frankenstein. People would have problems with you throwing a monster into a lake. They cut it. They cut it from later prints. So you had to make, you know, more story, but having to be more subversive about it. You'd have to sneak stuff in. You couldn't show what you had already shown. Whale was not interested until they agreed to make a romantic melodrama that nobody else wanted him to make, and I don't think made any money. But it was one of those, like, I'll do your Frankenstein 2 if you let me make my passion project. One more river. Didn't watch it and don't plan to. It's funny because this is considered a classic and the film that he made in order to whore himself out for this. Yeah, I've never heard of it either. Forgotten the time. And that's not so unusual, right? That's actually a very common story. Directors have it in their heads that they know that their passion projects are what are needed. But sometimes... Making the commercial thing, The Godfather being the perfect example, is the thing that makes your career. And certainly, this one was big for James Whale's career. His last kind of hit. I think he made Showboat after this, but pretty much this was the end of his movie making. And I mentioned last time, this was put in the National Registry. Many critics call this even better than Frankenstein. I had seen it, Hazy Memories. I think my memory, having rewatched it again this week, was. I didn't understand it was a comedy. I thought it was kind of a stupid movie because I didn't understand that it was supposed to be kind of subversive and funny. Okay, you're already addressing some of my issues here because I had never seen this one and I was surprised that we were going to be discussing a comedy. Yeah, I think one thing that's clear is James Whale, you know, he didn't want to make it. He sort of inserts a character that's sort of a poo-pooer of like the idea. I think it became a campier, sillier thing, because the director said, there's no way that I can make it scary. I have to play it more as a lampoon, uh, more as a kind of farce. And they shot it really fast, it should be said. I'm just always amazed when I read about these production schedules of these old movies. They started in January, and they put it out in April for Good Friday. (laughs) This was a Good Friday movie with all this religious imagery. Well, yeah, resurrection, right? Uh, Yeah, Frankenstein's monster is risen. I mean, everyone knows that Good Friday, Friday box office is a, a big deal in Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. It cost about 100000 more than Frankenstein and didn't gross nearly the $12 million. I think it was 3 or $4 million, but still a sizable hit. And again, some people would tell you, artistically speaking, it certainly traffics in new areas. Whether they're better or not, yet to be determined. But let's find out about this story, Arnie, because it does go in some weird directions. <laughs> Give us the plot. We pick up Bride of Frankenstein right where the first film left off. With the mob of people standing around the burning windmill, inside the monster was surely killed. But as the mob disperses, we see Frankenstein's monster survive the fire. He quickly kills two stragglers and goes off into the countryside. As for Henry Frankenstein, who was thrown from the windmill, he convalesces at his father's home, tended to by his fiancée Elizabeth. But Frankenstein is approached by Dr. Pretorius, another of Henry's former teachers. Pretorius, like Frankenstein, has created life, but Pretorius's creatures are tiny people he keeps in small jars. He wants to work with Frankenstein to create another full-sized creature, a female, a mate for Frankenstein's monster. 
Frankenstein refuses to take part in the creation. Meanwhile, the monster has been captured by the townspeople, but he escapes and ends up making friends with an old blind man. The man teaches the monster how to speak and how to smoke cigarettes. But their friendship is interrupted by two townspeople who recognize the monster. He must again escape being hunted. He goes to the graveyard where he comes upon Dr. Pretorius, who is there digging up corpses to make the monster's mate. Pretorius befriends the monster and has the monster kidnap Elizabeth, holding her hostage to make Frankenstein help build the female monster. Frankenstein makes the female monster. First he gives her life, then he gives her a huge hairdo. But this bride rejects her intended bridegroom. The monster gets angry. He allows Frankenstein and Elizabeth to get to safety, but then he blows up the lab, killing himself, his bride, and Dr. Pretorius as credits roll. As we get started, you didn't even mention that we start in 1818 with a prologue that introduces us to the author of that book they're not using, Mary Shelley. When it dawned on me that this was like Mary Shelley talking to Lord Byron and, oh, I've got another tale for you. Like, I'm like, whoa, it's one thing to have a guy come out and go, you're going to watch a very horrifying movie. Like, that feels appropriate. Like, this, all of a sudden, I don't know where I am. This feels like a very bizarre place to start The Bride of Frankenstein. What's freaking me out, though, is that this has some historical accuracy. Frankenstein was written on a dare when she was with Lord Byron and Lord Shelley, and they all decided to write horror stories together, and who could come up with the scariest idea? Yeah, it's juicier than that. It should be said, they made movies about this, and I remember really liking one. Ken Russell, who makes some wild-ass movies, made one called Gothic. It was called A Thinking Man's Nightmare on Elm Street, but it was exactly about the idea that these poets were shacked up all summer long in this mansion board, And they came up with nightmarish stories. Haunted Summer was one that had Eric Stoltz and Laura Dern. Again, it was popular to think about the creation of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I will also share that she was not Mary Shelley at this time. She was the mistress, and the wife ended up killing herself before she got together with Percy. So yeah, a lot of dark stuff you could play off of. The truth, as opposed to the fiction on the page. Here, I just think it's, it's a way of reminding folks what has already happened. And the director said he wanted people to notice, curious to know if you guys did, that the nice woman that's sewing that seems pretty could also be the Bride of Frankenstein. It's played by the same actress, Elsa Lancaster. I did not pick that up. I did notice in the opening credits, it said the bride dot 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 question mark. So yeah, I'm like, what 1930s actress are going to bring out that I'm not going to know because I wasn't alive then. But they did that for the first movie, too, for The Monster. I didn't catch it that time. In the opening credits, it said The Monster, question mark. But then in the end credits, it said The Monster, Boris Karloff. Right. And here, they just call him Karloff. Everyone knows and is going for Karloff, but they wanted it to be a surprise. Is it a surprise? I had to look it up because I wondered if it was like Troy Karloff. Like, what <laughs> did they not get Boris back for this one, but they got his son because they only credited him as Karloff. So I did end up looking that up and no, he's like Madonna now. You don't need to call him Boris. Yeah, he was made a superstar because of that. He, his honeymoon was ruined. It should be said he got married when that movie came out and he spent the entire time doing press junkets and couldn't attend to his new wife. So Frankenstein had taken over and the expectation is he was going to do it whether James Whale was coming back or not. But 
again, the tease of this movie is what will the bride look like? Will she be monstrous? Will she be pretty? What actress would play her? Yeah, that that was kept concealed. I wonder, though, my question is, if you look at any of the posters, you would know going into the theater before Frankenstein what he looked like and before Bride of Frankenstein what she looked like. So do people just not pay attention to ads? <laughs> I wonder that even nowadays with trailers, and I just feel like films, yeah, like, can't we just get past all this? We know what happens, but I guess there's always going to be someone. You got to pretend that there's some clueless individual that's going to walk in off the street because, yeah, this look is as iconic as Karloff's Frankenstein look. Like, I already knew what the bride looked like. I haven't seen this film. I knew exactly what she looked like, though. But if it was 1935 and you had really loved the other movie, and there's no TV to go back, no. No way of rewatching the movie. Like, you just a hazy memories of, of what they did there. You would have a lot of anticipation. I think it's meaningful. They're going to spend this entire movie building up to the creation scene. That, unlike the original film, where by 20, 25 minutes, he's alive, she won't be alive until the climax. Final four minutes of the film. Yeah, it's unbelievable to me that it takes that long to get to her. I don't know how the bride got her, her name in this title because she's barely in it. <laughs> well, the original title was Return of Frankenstein. But again, the selling point is what would a bride of Frankenstein look like? Yeah. What's this new monster going to be? Yes. What is the new monster? We've already seen Karloff and we want to enjoy Karloff. Karloff doesn't exactly look like he did in the last one. It should be said they've changed the makeup a little bit. Apparently he gained weight. Part of it was, God bless him, he could eat. And his cheeks weren't as not filled in as before. And so he didn't do the trick about pulling out his dentures. His face is not sunken like it was in that first one. They've also tweaked the head. Like they have it so that, you know, if he burned up in the fire, he's got singed hair and he's got burn marks on his face that are going to scar. There's a lot about the makeup that, again, they surprisingly kept continuity and made adjustments and changes to this character. They want to see a Frankenstein's monster that grows and changes. And as we get back into that story, he's a killer. I wouldn't admit that last time. I insisted this is a child that is only reacting to a cruel world. But nope, I see a monster when we get back to the mill and he's yanking Maria's dad. The girl that he accidentally killed, he's now, well, admittedly, that guy's coming for him, but he's going to choke him out. Yeah, but I do blame him, too, like you, Stuart, like Maria's dad. And it's great how it's shot when he goes down to that mill and it's all flooded and all the burned beams and Frankenstein's there in the shadows. And But yeah, I do feel like my first note is Frankenstein's a killer this time. Like, he is not the innocent and he is going to be more of a scary monster than an innocent monster. More than just that caged animal backed into a corner this time. He could kill the dad. The dad was going to kill him. But they kill the mom, too. He throws the mom. Yeah, when he throws her in. Here's the thing. When he threw that little girl in, he didn't know that she wouldn't float. But he knows what he's doing when he throws her into that water. Yeah, Boris Karloff gives great facial expressions during this. He's showing anger and aggression with this. I mean, it is clear that this is a crime of hatred. Yeah, well, I mean, understandable. I don't think the audience is against him because... Keep in mind, this, these villagers did ask for it. They did burn down the mill with him inside of it. They would kill him. They've all dispersed and gone home. But yeah, he's right to be angry. That's where he starts. I definitely see that they have now recalibrated this 
Boris Karloff into a killer. And the surprise is he will change and grow and, and soften as the movie changes and grows and, and gets goofier. But what about this Henry? Again, last time when he hit that windmill, back broken, I don't know how. It doesn't even seem like any doctors attend to him. They just kind of put him in a wheelbarrow, cart him home, and <laughs> he's just convalescing in a bed for half the movie. They act like he's dead. I thought they were retconning the end of the last movie and killing him right here because of that wheelbarrow thing. And then they're like, oh my God, he's alive. And yeah, he comes back really easily. Yeah. And they reused the same actor, Colin Clive. He is back in this part. The studio did not want him. He was a notorious alcoholic by this point and had gotten so sick that he had, I don't know how you drink yourself to this point. They had removed a lung? I didn't know you could lose a lung. Yeah. I thought that meant you were dead. <laughs> no, you can lose one lung. You just can't lose two lungs. They're like kidneys? <laughs> yeah. If you have cancer, you can lose a lung. That, that happens quite a lot. Yeah. Part of this, they didn't want him to be such a lethargic character, but they had to write him that way because he was just in such a terrible medical state. And his, I guess the woman that played his wife was in a asylum. She was having some mental breakdowns. And so they cast a 17-year-old girl to be the wife this time. I don't know if you noticed a difference. Oh, I noticed it wasn't the same actress. I did not realize this one was underage. Yeah, it's a strange, with her coming home and welcoming him, it just doesn't have the same vibe. And again, I never felt like it was a romance last time. They never sold me that Elizabeth and Henry should be together. I kind of am missing the Baron. He's totally out of the picture. They say he's dead. And... Henry is now the Baron. Yeah, I, di I didn't catch when that would have happened. This is like the next day from the last movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's strange. I mean, again, we saw him toasting his son in bed. So I don't know. Again, continuity is not that important. They're not able to buy the movie, rewatch it a hundred times, be able to hold side by side the different versions. Maybe you miss these things. Maybe you don't notice. But everyone would know that Dr. Pretorius was not in the original. This is a very new vibe coming into this movie around the 15-minute mark. Yeah, this is when, again, I start to scratch my chin. What kind of film is this? Because when Pretorius is around, like, I'm like, this is like a black comedy, right? Is this a parody of what Henry Frankenstein was? I think what some people would tell you is, this is James Whale, the director, putting an avatar of himself into the movie, that he very much looks and acts like this. This was a close friend that he had used in other comedies, putting in here, described as a, quote, very queer-looking man and bringing a lot of gay camp into this picture. I definitely feel like this movie oftentimes gets cited as a queer classic because of Dr. Pretorius. Oh, I didn't get that off of him. What?! Oh, okay, because, yeah, again, when he showed up, I all of a sudden did not know what kind of film I was in. Yeah, he wants to be partners and probe the inner, inner mysteries of life and death. He's making things out of his seed. Yes, yes. They cut some lines, but there was, when he's talking about creation, he's like, you can do it the natural way, but I have to do it through science. That was a line that the censors didn't like. But yes, this character was very much written to be sort of the gay scientist that is going to disrupt this wholesome marriage and take Henry back into this 
disturbing world of creating life and playing God. Now, why he has six people in jars, I think that was just a novel special effect. Oh my God, the special effect. It may have been novel, but it certainly was silly. No, yeah, when this happens, I'm like, okay, this is a B-movie camp where the silly tiny king is climbing out of his jar and getting picked up by tongs. Like, I've got a smile on my face because it is so bizarre, but I'm like, this is a very different place from that goth, I feel bad for Frankenstein that I was going through with the last film. Again, Whale was like, there's no point in coming back to Frankenstein. This is a director that is staunchly against doing this movie and has been bribed into doing it. He's trying to find an end. So he's found this sort of campy gay character to kind of ridicule the whole notion of marriage and creation and what have you. And yeah, I think that this is just him having a bit of fun. And he'll also work in some sacrilege that we're going to see when we get back to Frankenstein. That He's going to be brought up Christian and, you know, crucified at one point. They're going to play with imagery. I think this director... And part of the reason why this movie is celebrated is it's just more subversive. It's winking and campy, and yeah, horror does not seem to be on the agenda at all. Wow, I didn't get any of that off of this film. I really didn't. I got some camp off of it, but I didn't get anything subversive or what you're discussing. Oh, by the time we get to the end, I think it's very subversive when we see a Frankenstein marriage. Yeah, you can't miss Frankenstein going up on the cross. I mean, that's... It's in giant frame. I mean, that's not even like in the background. But let's get there. Yeah, so Frankenstein has been wandering around in the forest. He made it out of the mill and is having another moment where a woman is in the water, right? He sees this sheep herder woman and she falls in because she's fainted and he's not a killer anymore, right? He knows what can happen if he leaves her in there and he decides to rescue her. And she rewards him by screaming and bringing hunters. And he's chased and shot at and eventually caught. This is what I mean. Like, he is turned into a Christ figure when they get him on the Temple Mount. He's caught, but he escapes rather quickly, too. Nothing comes of him being caught. I was shocked that it didn't have any repercussions. It felt like, again, this is a very short movie, and that felt like filler. Yeah, no, I... Anytime Frankenstein is around, except for the end, like, it does feel like filler. Like, where's the bride? Why are we having Frankenstein run around in the mountains again and get chased? And, yeah, there are moments of comedy, but I definitely got the vibe that Frankenstein was not on this movie's mind. And I guess that's the director's mind. Like, that was not what he wanted to focus on. And I feel that. Really? I feel like the best stuff here is the Frankenstein stuff. I feel like... The Pretorius stuff is, well, it is what it is. The Pretorius stuff is my favorite. I'm with Stuart. I think that this movie focuses a lot on the Frankenstein monster, just not in the beginning. In the beginning, we're going to focus a lot on Pretorius and Dr. Frankenstein. Or actually, it's Mr. Frankenstein. He's not a doctor in this one. He didn't spend six years in medical school. But I think we're definitely going to spend a lot of time with the monster midpoint of this movie to the end. Oh, for sure. I'm talking about as we go through this. Yeah, once we get to that blind man, we're going to spend a whole lot of time there. Yeah, this is where they're starting to do a Christ story. I mean, again, this is the subversion. I mean, you see that, right? They tie him up. He's crucified. He's held up. He's moaning. Like, the reason why they do this is not filler. It's so that you identify him as this brought back from the dead savior. That, again, that they will restore the idea that he is an innocent from this point forward. The notion that he is a monster, 
he will be redeemed as we go through his story here. That, yes, chains don't hold him. They bring him down to a dungeon. Snap, snap, snap. He's free. Now, does he kill another kid? We have this one kind of obscured moment where a mom is looking for her daughter. You know, she's screaming for Frida. And then I thought she found her husband. We just see some legs. It's not clear. Yeah, I wasn't quite sure what was going on in that scene. I was not clear what happened in this scene. More importantly, he goes to a campfire later. There's some Romani that are hanging out. And he tries to touch fire, right? He tries to take the food and gets burnt and reaffirms the idea that fire is this burning thing that is bad and all of that stuff. And then he meets a guy that's going to show him kindness and humanity and and what it is to be alive. I think that this is, unfortunately, it's reminding me a lot of the bit in Young Frankenstein. Gene Hackman, I believe, (laughs) had this role of the blind hermit. But yeah, this is the human part. This is where we are to see the sweetness that I was talking about last movie. And it's from the book. It's worth pointing out that in the book, Frankenstein learns to talk by watching a family that is headed by an old blind man. And Frankenstein goes in and befriends the old blind man. And then people come in and see the monster. And because they're sighted, it ruins the whole vibe. But yeah, they're going back to Mary Shelley with some of the stuff. And I really like this stuff here. It feels like what you'd want to explore with Frankenstein. Someone with this newborn mind. And yeah, we saw how Fritz beat him in that last film and that drove him to killing. And so what happens when you treat him right, when you talk to him, when you try to teach him, when you teach him the love for some tobacco weed? <laughs> Frankenstein loves to smoke. Yeah, that, again, this feels like young Frankenstein sometimes. I'm laughing a lot. And I think that's intentional. Again, I want to stress that James Whale is laughing too. He can't believe he's having to make this sequel and he's just going to go for it. You know, I think there's a quote, something along the lines of, if I can't make a legitimate movie, then I'm just going to just go crazy and have fun. That's what it feels like is happening. And so I don't feel bad for laughing so much because I was wondering how much of this is intentional. It sounds like a lot of it was. He knew what he was doing going in. All of it, yes. It feels like they're breaking the fourth wall and winking at us. And again, I don't know. You could probably write the term paper about whether this character is Christ or a martyr or what have you. It just feels to me like someone that's having fun. Like, oh, you tell me I got censors and they they don't like it when I have somebody say I'm playing God. Well, I'm going to actually have him be our Lord and Savior in this shot. It feels like a director that is poking. And that can be fun. You'll notice when he's put to bed, there's a crucifix over it. They're playing Ave Maria, bread, wine, the Last Supper meal that Jesus had. Well, yeah, I I thought that was supposed to be obvious that he was doing like, yeah, the sacrament with bread and wine. I did not catch that. I'm not very religious, obviously. The fact that it was wine just stood out like it's got to be a Christian thing. Here's the thing is this is the 1930s. Men smoke, men drink wine. I didn't know this was intentional camp. I didn't realize that. I thought this was just the times. Well, then let me ask you, how are you experiencing it? Are you laughing? Oh, I'm laughing, but I thought I was laughing at it. And I was going back and forth. Sometimes I felt like, yes, this is supposed to be funny. And other times I'm like, "Uh, is this supposed to be funny? But it sounds like it was all supposed to be funny. A hundred percent. Yes. Don't think that this was some naive... Yeah, I mean, this wouldn't be the sequel, right? If you were going to just make a sequel, 
you would have done something much more cut and paste. And that they're doing all these weird flourishes and putting all of this, yeah, spending all this extra time on Frankenstein and not his bride, to me means that, yeah, they're having a lot of fun and kind of laughing about the last movie. It feels almost plotless. Like, it's just little set pieces and skits that they're setting up. Like, not that they're all funny skits, but it's like, yeah, we'll have a chase scene here and now spend some time with the blind guy. Like, I don't really know what the plot is, except it starts to form here. I feel like when Frankenstein's monster learns man, woman, bad, good, all that, that's when he starts to develop, oh, I want to be with someone or I want someone like me because there's no one else like me. Friend. (laughs) Yeah, I think that starts to happen here. I also think if you're asking what is the plot, to me it is, this is like a, a fish out of water of like what it is to be human. And in the end, they decide dead is better. The joke is, I'm not for this world. In the end, is any of this worthwhile? I'll take the afterlife. I'll take being dead. Because, yeah, a lot of this is misery. Yeah, he makes this one friend and they have a couple of sweet scenes here. But it's not long before some hunters blow in and the whole place burns down and they're shooting them. Yeah, I love that they burn it down. Even though Frankenstein's monster is, like, fleeing it, they're like, we're still going to burn down the hermit's place. It wasn't clear to me how the fire might have started. I know that initially the hermit was trying to show him fire's not always bad. You can smoke with it. You can cook with it. But I think that when the guys started pulling their rifles, Frankenstein's monster just started, I don't know. It it seems like he was just erratically throwing things and attacking, and the fire was accidental. But this is what I'm talking about, how, like, this plot just goes wherever it wants, because the next scene is Frankenstein's monster is just, like, in a tomb, and Pretorius just happens to be there looking for a woman. Well, here's the one thing that I think they got wrong with the script, is that I feel like this should have come before Pretorius goes to Henry. There's no real motivating reason why Pretorius would want to make a mate for a creature he never met, right? Like, that doesn't make any sense. But if he were here doing his little weird experiment growing tiny people, and suddenly, yeah, Frankenstein blew in and it was like, I want woman. Well, now he has a reason to go back to Henry. I feel like the editing of this, the choices, the assembly of the stories, a little muddled. There's no motivating reason for Pretorius to get involved. But what we are to understand is Frankenstein has come home. This is the graveyard where his torso came from. He knocks over like a bishop headstone, again, more sacrilege, to go down into this crypt to hide, presumably forever. And Pretorius is there getting him a woman. He is already on the case trying to find some, well, you said it in your opening lines, right? Firm bones. Firm bones. <laughs> yeah. That's camp, guys. Come on. That is innuendo. That is funny. Yeah. Anytime Pretorius is on screen, I, I take it as camp. And I do love how goth, we've talked about Frankenstein's monster being the goth monster. Like, I love dead, hate living. And Pretorius, that line, you're wise in your generation. Laugh out loud, funny. Yes. Yeah, I'm feeling like I saw a different movie than you guys because I'm not (laughs) finding this stuff funny. I'm not catching these references. I'm just taking this all very straight. Okay. I would find that hard to do. I'll be honest. I don't know how you would do that. Wouldn't it hit you over the head at a certain point? This is really stupid then. Yes, I did it many (laughs) times think that this was really stupid. Frankenstein smoking is really stupid. I mean, this is, yeah, if you go into Gremlins 2, the new batch, 
thinking it's a serious sequel, you will be confused. You grabbed my reference, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) That's exactly what this movie is. This is exactly them blowing up the original, redoing it, breaking the fourth wall, and laughing at themselves. This is Whale laughing at Frankenstein. Yes, it's meta. Which is blowing my mind because I, I'm picking it up, like, I'll, I'll say half of it. Arnie, a little less. Stuart's getting it all. I'm about picking up half of it. And it's blowing my mind that in the 30s, someone's self-aware enough to do this. Yeah, it's, and I do believe it's mostly James Whale. He had carte blanche. Again, they were waiting for him. He had complete and total control. If he says we're doing little people, if he says Frankenstein talks, I mean, that was a big deal. Karloff didn't want to do it. Karloff's like, this character doesn't talk. I'll look foolish. And Whale's like, yeah, you will, won't you? (laughs) Whale was willing to turn his baby into this campy self-parody. And that definitely feels new. I mean, yeah, I can't think of a film earlier that would take such risks. That camp sensibility is here. I don't know if there's an earlier film. I don't know where you would find it. But yes, so Pretorius now has allied himself with the monster and goes back to Henry and tries again. Won't you please help me with this experiment? I thought Henry was on board. Like the last time he seemed like he was pretty gung-ho with it. I guess I just can't track this character ever. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I was in the exact same place as I was putting in my notes. I'm like, okay, Frankenstein and Pretorius are working together on this. And then we spend a lot of time with the monster. And then we see Pretorius in a grave. I'm like, I guess he's grabbing parts for him to use with Frankenstein. And then we get to this scene and I'm like, wait, Frankenstein wasn't on board? I thought he was sold on this concept. I thought he'd been lured to the dark side. What I love is when Pretorius brings in the monster to help persuade Henry and the monster talks and Pretorius says, there have been developments since he came to yes. me. Like, that is the laugh out line for me, for whatever reason. It just really hit me hard. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is a comedy. Like, this is when it hit me. Like, it's okay to really laugh at this. Must do it. Yeah, like, yeah. okay. I hadn't heard your voice before. Okay, yeah, this, I agree. This is, to me, it is funny in ways that the original was not. I feel like there was campiness in the original. But this one has really gremlins to it. I'm going to just go ahead and seize on that because that is my reference. And just for the record, I like gremlins too a lot more than I like gremlins. So that's fine with me. But I can imagine some people not liking this, feeling like it's gone too far. See, I'm having fun with it and I'm liking the concept. I keep wanting to get to the bride of this Bride of Frankenstein. (laughs) I do find that it takes a long time to get there. but. I'm also just laughing at this movie, I think. I think that it's just silly and campy, and I view it as a product of its time. So, again, now that Frankenstein's monster has learned that not all people are bad, how about that? And he's kind of made a friend in Pretorius. They never considered the idea that he would turn Elizabeth into his bride. But doesn't it feel like that's what the movie should do when he kidnaps her? Don't you feel like she should have the beating heart that they need to make her come alive? I feel like you don't use Elizabeth in this movie, and that's a huge mistake. Yeah, but that's too dark. Like, you're, you're going to remove her heart. Like, they couldn't do that in 1935. Yeah, I mean, they did that in Bride of Reanimator, but they, I don't think, would do that for Bride of Frankenstein. 
Some people had treatments where they were going to take the characters this way, that Henry Frankenstein would be killing women, or at the very least, showing up and grabbing body parts from women that had had traumatic events. And I feel like, you're right, that may be too dark for this campy movie, and way too dark for Production Code 1935, but I want it. Yeah, I'll say the way they play it, now instead of Fritz, the Igor character is now Ludwig, and like, yeah, Pretorius is going to send him out. He like, yeah, he knows where to get fresh hearts. And Henry is so dumb or naive, like thinking, oh, he's going to dig these up. Like, no, he's obviously just going to go murder a woman and we see him do that. So like, I feel that plays that comedy right. And yeah, if he's going to kill Elizabeth, it's not a comedy anymore. It takes on a different tone. I wondered though, watch that scene again. What happens is he's like, go out and check the hospitals because accidents happen all the time. And I feel like the way they're looking at each other, they they know what is being asked, right? I feel like Henry knows. Henry seems surprised later. Well, maybe later, but I thought they were on the same wavelength. At this moment, I thought they were. And then the fact that Henry, like, later is like, oh, that's just someone you found, right? Like, he acted like he didn't know what was up. Mm-hmm. I feel like that was a walk back for the production code. Keep in mind, there's a guy screening this and telling them, No, no, this movie was originally 90 minutes. They lost 15 minutes of it. And I'm sure one of the scenes they talked about was, it's just here in a flash, but we see Ludwig still played by the same guy. It's the same actor? (laughs) Yeah, same actor as our Renfield and as our Hunchback last time. Yeah, he just comes up on a woman passing by and throws something over her head. I'm sure there was a scene there, and that just is too graphic for the production code to include in the final film. Do we need it? I kind of feel like I needed it because I wanted to see that these men were going too far. Otherwise, is this a terrible thing that they're doing, that they're creating this bride? It feels like kind of sweet otherwise, right? I thought it read that they knew they were doing something unsavory, like just killing alive women. And so, yeah, they had gone too far. Right. It has to be predicating on that. For us to be against it and for it to go so wrong at the end, for it to be tragic the way that the movie's going to play it, you have to see that it was done in bad faith, that this whole experiment was bad. And that, yes, maids, women were killed. And yeah, I mean, one thing I thought I heard was the brain is grown artificially. Why get a woman's brain? We'll just grow that in a test tube. (laughs) But we do need an actual heart. So they kill some woman for a heart grow the brain. I don't know where the rest of the body is, but all of a sudden we are now at the climax and there is a feminine form going up into the sky with kites this time to catch the electricity. Yeah, and this is where like they have to give Frankenstein, I guess, something to do. Like he was drugged and now he's throwing I thought he was going to like mess up the experiment or something. He throws a guy off and it like hits that kite. I thought that might do something, but it doesn't. Yeah, what is, I don't understand, wouldn't he be excited? Like, these people are working for him. Yeah, it didn't make sense to me. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't get that either. I feel like, unfortunately, again, the best scenes in this movie, for my take, are Frankenstein's scenes. They didn't want to lose him now that we're sort of in the Henry and Pretorius phase. We got to watch them assemble this body. They don't know what to do with him. So they give him, yeah, kind of... A useless kill, that he goes up to the roof and throws Ludwig off. I don't know why you do that. I don't know why he would be motivated. This guy's trying to help him get a girl. That shouldn't be a reason to kill him. And he's not a killer, right? I don't know. 
I feel the movie, the wheels coming off a bit here as we approach the end. Yeah, I think things go totally bonkers (laughs) once the bride shows up. So here's how I thought it would play out. It's Frankenstein and the bride and they get along and I don't know, they have kids or something. I I think we're doing a son of Frankenstein at some point. But I thought in my head, oh, this would be really funny if it was like the bride freaking out and Frankenstein has to learn about consent. And, like, you can't just take her because she's a woman. <laughs> and then that kind of plays out and it blows my mind. hmm And I actually really enjoy this ending. Once the bride shows up, and I'm not saying campy, I'm not saying laugh at it, I'm saying that there's some serious drama that I see here. I actually really like the horrified version of the bride, how she is just not having Frankenstein's monster as her mate. And Arnie, are you recognizing her as Mary Shelley, or that, does that ever occur to you? No, that I didn't catch that. That was missed on me till I saw the credits. Yeah. I don't think you can, because there's just so much about the bride that is overshadowed by her hairdo. The fact that they, they have the lightning bolts in her actual wig. Is there any production notes, like how they came up with that look? It is such a great look. It's still Pierce, the same guy that came up with the look for Boris. They gave it to him, and they said he acted like a real diva. She did not like him because he was like, I'm the star here. I'm the one that will give the performance. And she, you know, didn't take to that. But he's kind of right. I mean, he might not have been fun on the set. But yes, this vision is as iconic as the bolts in the neck and the enlarged forehead. Absolutely it is. Which is why it's so stunning to me that she has so little screen time. Well, I get that you're building up. This is the climax. What happens afterwards, who knows, right? Like, we want to know what she looks like, and here she is. And it's a whole, I mean, again, they do the hand thing first, and they peel back the bandages and see the eyes, and they stand her upright, and she's got the feminine form. She's hot. It's worth pointing out. Yes. It's pretty clear that even before they're done, they're not going to make her as nasty looking. Maybe it's because they've improved their methods. Maybe they picked better specimens. Pretorius calls out that they were getting like 19-year-old women. Like they weren't getting old ones. They're getting the good-looking ones. I guess. I mean, yes. The firm bones is what you're referring to. That is that is what he is looking for. And so she's a real looker here. And why would she be into this guy? That That's the punchline. If you make a hot bride, she's going to be a runaway bride when she takes a look at this groom. Is Frankenstein the first incel? Like, yeah, he just can't get lucky with women and it's just going to blow everything up because of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just affirms everything that he had been feeling. It sucks to be alive. This is no fun. Dead is better. We belong dead. I love that moment, actually. I think it's a really solid moment of self-actualization. And I wish the bride, the bride may not belong dead. I don't know that she deserved or wanted to die. She didn't want to be with Frank's monster, but she may not have wanted to burn up with him either. Again, I think because, follow me here, if we love Boris Karloff, we don't like the girl that breaks his heart, right? You know, it's not really her fault, per se, but we don't like her. It's unfortunate that she would reject him. And again, she, the way she hisses when she sees him, again, it's... It's so good! Yeah, it really is. Now, I ask you, Obviously, it needed to end with some tragedy. Pretorius was earmarked for death. He definitely belongs dead. But the original ending that they shot and tested and then reshot 
was that everyone, even Elizabeth, who came running back, blew up in this mansion. They were all dead. Because here, Henry and Elizabeth get away. Yes. Nobody lives was how James Whale wanted to end it. And the test audiences said no. Yeah, that feels like an even bigger F.U. type of joke to put in here. Yes. Doesn't it feel like a complete and total, I hate this job. Yeah, screw you. There will be no Frankenstein 3. Yeah, (laughs) Frankenstein himself being killed, I could go with. But killing Elizabeth is a bit much. Yeah, certainly, uh, you know, a character that's only been seen as pure and only been victimized. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't feel like an act of martyrdom trying to bring back the religious themes. It just feels more of just like, okay, I'm tanking this franchise so that nobody can do anything more with it. And the fact that they are spared does mean that they can pick up and that we will be talking about a son next week in four years when they relaunch. They have somewhere to go. So Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Bride of Frankenstein? Jacob. This was a real surprise because I didn't expect to be laughing during any of these old black and white. I don't remember doing that with any of those Dracula sequels, like laughing and having a good time. And yet here I am during this one. Like, yeah, sometimes I'm like, this is really clunky. Is this supposed to be funny or is this just like weird 1930s culture that I just don't, we're out of touch with it. That's just not the way we jive anymore. And so it's good to hear that, yes, this is supposed to be funny because I had a a real good time laughing at the camp, laughing at, yeah, just like tiny kings climbing out of test tubes. Like, you have little people like that on on camera, like, B-movie fun. And that was a surprise, like, that they swung so far that way. I'm glad they did. Like, the fact that the bride is just screaming in horror as she has to be put together with this man, like, wow, I I didn't expect to have this kind of, yeah, self-aware comedy in 1935. Someone doing that Gremlins 2 thing before Gremlins 2, before Joe Dante could do it. Maybe this is what inspired him. I wouldn't be surprised. Joe Dante was on the commentary track, so he's a fan. Okay, there you go, for sure. So yeah, I I will say, though, if you're not getting the camp and humor, this could seem a little bit clunky, not really working, but it's okay to laugh at this one, guys. You're supposed to. And I'll say this, like, I did go back and watch Young Frankenstein after I watched these ones. And yeah, it's, I don't know if this is sacrilege. That one's all right. I laughed a couple of times. It's all right. You know, it's mid-level Mel Brooks. It's not as funny as it was back then. I hate to say that too. I only like Blazing Saddles. I never liked Young Frankenstein. Yeah. Okay. So I feel a little bit more comfortable. I thought that was a very unpopular opinion. I will say though, I laughed a whole lot more with Bride and Frankenstein, a better Frankenstein comedy than the one that's supposed to be a comedy. So yeah. It's not so scary, but you're going to have a good time with this one. Recommend. Stuart. Yeah, and I don't know that I've come to the idea that the bride is better, that she's more impressive than her groom. All I can really say is that I appreciate that James Whale wanted to throw a great wedding, that he wanted everyone smiling, and he just creates this madcap energy that does remind me, you mentioned Gremlins too. The other one I was thinking of is, this feels as much a prequel to Rocky Horror Picture Show as a sequel to Frankenstein. It really breaks the fourth wall and laughs at itself and just, you know, the censors, the whole gay camp character that comes in, the religious imagery, the institution of marriage, you name it. It's all fodder to be ridiculed and this silly campy trip that, you know, still has some heart. I will say Karloff is surprisingly good in his scenes, even though it's It's ridiculous watching him smoke cigars 
and some of the things he's asked to do. I think he is actually better. I think he has grown in this part. Now that he can talk, he can really convey even more fully his childlike sensibilities. And the fact that he ends up concluding that dead is better than alive has some poignancy. Yeah, this ending, I agree with you, Arnie. It's funny, but it's also dramatic, too. It really takes some risks in a lot of ways. My complaint, and I've already said this, is I've never connected with Henry Frankenstein. And I really think that this one should have spent a little bit more time. As cool as Pretorius is, it feels like it's all on him to engineer why we have a bride. And I get nothing out of Henry. And him and Elizabeth, I think there should have been something about their love story that played out with Frankenstein and his bride. But, you know, whatever you say about the inclusion of that character, it did sound like medically speaking, he wasn't doing well. And maybe they were wise not to give too much to Clive for this film. I would say, yeah, overall, this is another solid recommend. And again, to kind of just summarize what I've said this podcast, I didn't see this as intentional camp. I definitely was laughing while watching this movie, though. And I found myself just having a better time with it than I did the first one. But the ending took away the stuff I was laughing at and actually hit me on a heartfelt note with the We Belong Dead. It felt like that was a really dramatic beat for a movie that hadn't had a whole lot of drama up until then. So in the end, I like this one just a little bit more than I liked the first one. It's a definite recommend, a nice solid recommend from me, even if you don't catch all of the gay camp stuff that I didn't. I never saw any of that. The only thing I really hated about this film were the people in the jars. That part just really took me away out of the movie, and I couldn't take that bit. But beyond that, I enjoyed the film. I agree. It's a strange one. And again, it's not a formula sequel. If they had given it to another director, we would probably treating it like Dracula's daughter or Son of Dracula. Although that one was kind of weird too. But it would have been less campy and less self-aware and less innovative than I think this movie really is. And I think it's one you definitely want to see. Boris Karloff only puts on the makeup one more time. Next week is his swan song to the character of Frankenstein. He is done after Son of Frankenstein. So I'm looking forward to seeing what he's going to do for finale. And for something completely different, a totally different fish out of water story than Frankenstein, if you are a gold level donor, this Friday we begin our Beverly Hills Cop retrospective series. This is for donors of $25 or more. We're doing a whole bunch of 80s cop films, but we're starting off with the trilogy, soon to be quadrilogy, Eddie Murphy's iconic Axel Foley in Beverly Hills Cop. There is sort of a Frankenstein quality to him walking around Beverly Hills. I'm not sure who the monster is. Is it him <laughs> or is it Beverly Hills? I tend to think it's the latter. It's a franchise I've been wanting to discuss forever. Can't believe we're finally getting to it. Can't believe they're finally doing a sequel. I mean, this movie is coming up on 40 years old, and now we're getting a chance to cover it. It Feels to me like Bride of Frankenstein's 40 years old and Beverly Hills Cop is recent, but no, Beverly Hills Cop <laughs> is 40 years old, Bride of Frankenstein's 90. Yep, it's all part of our gold level. I hope you can join us for that. We're just getting started, but after Beverly Hills Cop, we'll be looking at a whole bunch of 80s 
fish out of water, buddy cop scenarios, Billy Crystal, Gregory Hines, Tom Hanks and a dog, Kurt Russell and Sylvester Stallone. Best movie of all time. Emilio. I forgot about Emilio Estevez and Richard Dreyfus with a little bit of Rosie O'Donnell, too. A lot of cop comedies. Should be a really good time to revisit that decade and see what was done. So you can find the details how to support our show and get these bonus reviews at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your support. Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. Until next time, good night all and pleasant dreams. Thank you for listening to this Now Playing Podcast movie review. We hope you enjoyed the show. I must continue my experiments. Help us spread the word about this show by leaving a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your podcast store of choice. My friend, he does things for me. Want more reviews like this one? In the archive section of NowPlayingPodcast.com, you'll find more than 1,000 in-depth movie reviews from our panel of hosts. Before you came, I was all alone. It is bad to be alone. On our site, you can hear reviews for every installment in the world's biggest film franchises, including the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Star Wars, Spider-Man, Batman, X-Men, James Bond, Middle Earth, Jurassic Park, Fast and Furious, and Transformers. But this isn't science. It's more like black magic. Plus, we have individual movie reviews, such as Titanic, E.T., Inception, Big Hero 6, Ready Player One, Pulp Fiction, Apocalypse Now, Dr. Strangelove, and hundreds more. Your health will be ruined if you persist in this madness. And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com next Tuesday for another all-new movie review podcast. We're going to explore something so foreign to us, we can't even imagine what it's going to be like. Support from listeners like you keeps Now Playing Podcast on the air. Thank you. Thank you for your courtesy. You can donate directly by tapping the support button at NowPlayingPodcast.com. And you can join our crowdfunding campaign for early access to new episodes, exclusive reviews, and bonus reviews. You'll do as I say, and you will have everything you want. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Here he planned a miracle. I saw it come to pass. Associate produced by Jason Latham. He's completely superhuman. Now Playing is edited by Heath, Santiago, and Arnie. I'm exhausted. I must get sleep. Work. Finish. Now Playing credits read by Brock. How beautifully dramatic. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Enganza Media Incorporated. Nobody believe me. Right? I'll wash my hands a bit. Let them all be murdered in the beds. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. As long as you continue to live in this place, you're in danger. 
Now Playing podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. You're speaking in riddles, Head Inspector. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2024, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. We belong dead. <laughs>